Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I just want to remind you again that The Axe Files has been nominated for two Webby Awards, and you will decide our fate. If you guys like this podcast, then go on to webbyawards.com, and the two categories in which we were nominated were Best Interview Slash Talk Show and Best host, one that is particularly close to me. If you could go on and vote in both those categories, that would be great. Now, Jim Shuto, even as we speak, I'm looking across uh, the room, and there he is on CNN uh, talking about the events of the last few days in Syria. Jim Shuto came by uh, the Institute of Politics last week before the raid uh, against Assad. Uh, to bring to bear his 20 years as an international correspondent for ABC, chief national security correspondent for CNN, and two years as a senior aide in the American embassy in Beijing. China, the Middle East, uh, these are areas he knows as well as any. And uh, we had a chance to talk about all of that and his life um, when he came by the IOP. Jim Shudo, uh, among other things, my fellow New Yorker, welcome, uh, welcome here. I, uh, I I see you are a product of Regis High School in mm-hmm. New York, a Jesuit school. Yeah, yeah. How wh- how did that impact on your on your worldview? It is. I mean, there's no other, certainly no other school that I went to that was more influential on the way that I think and. and the way I tried to people act. at Yale may resent that. But. I know, and and I say it. And I even say it to my to my Yale friends. But it was, you know, the Jesuits are a special breed. Yes, you know, they, they are. I think tr- the world's learning that now with this Pope, with Francis. I mean, he, you see it in him. I mean, they're, they're intellectuals. Um, they really influence the way I think about the world, and and they are questioners by nature. And I think that that some of that probably led me the way that I went in terms of my career path. It's about challenging things, right? Why is this that way? That's the way I was taught to think since I was 14. But there's also inherent in that, there's a, there's a mission, there's a Jesuit mission. The, the, the Regis motto is men for others. And, and um, you know, I don't claim to be, you know, you know, I don't claim to be any sort of, you know, charitable hero by any mean, but, means, but that in my life, uh, I've tried to find a mission where you can make a difference, and I know that that ethos is part of it. 
and mm-hmm. it was kind of drilled into our heads. But you know the way the Jesuits are; they don't, they don't really drill it. You know, when I went to I went to grade school with with the Sisters of Charity, they actually drilled stuff into your heads. You know, my <laughs> my knuckles are still red from uh, from Catholic grade school. But, but uh-huh. the Jesuits, you know, this is about asking questions and convincing and and um, and making you feel that you you know that you have you have a role. And uh, you have an ability as an individual to make a difference and, and a way to do that. You know? Yeah. Well, uh, this pope has uh, been sort of transformational in bringing that Jesuit ethic to, mm. uh, uh, to the Vatican. And I think, and you could speak to this, I'm a, like I'm a Jew from New York, you're a Catholic mm-hmm. from New York, but the, uh, has, uh, from a, just from a, kind of marketing standpoint, I think he's re-energized a lot of younger Catholics, a lot of my Catholic friends who mm-hmm. see in him what they want the church to be. Absolutely. And and Catholics wanted that for some for, for, for years, right? I mean, you know, I I've been sad about my church, you know, and, and, and to this day I will confess uh, you know, I don't go to church. When when I grew up we went every Sunday and every every feast day. My mom made sure that that happened. I haven't done that. I I, I do my best. That's why you have to do your confession here to a I you. am I hope you know yeah. listen man, if you'll take it, I'll give it to you. <laughs> um but um that you know, a lot of us were longing for that. I mean, the, the Catholic Church, as you know, went went through and is still going through immense problems. I mean, the child abuse being one of them, but it's response to child abuse, but also a disconnect from change, you know. And this is the thing about Jesuits as well. I mean, I talked about mission, and I talked about inquisitiveness, but, it, but it's also Jesuits— Oddly enough, and almost ironically, as Catholics, they're, they're, they're open-minded, right? I mean, this is the thing. You know, you, you had a lot of—it's it, a very tolerant mm-hmm. group of people. You know, I was not taught—I certainly wasn't taught that that Catholic—you know, Catholic is the only right faith. I mean, that's the funny thing about the Jesuits. Even the Pope wouldn't sit down and say, you know, this is the only, this is the only way. Yeah. Um, and and I, that, I think it's that spirit of tolerance that has been appealing in, in addition to the notion— of giving of oneself of of he, you know his willingness to or his ability to sort of um, uh, downplay his own stature right. and and uh, you know doing the things that people very much associate with Christianity generally. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, you know, it, it's a message I think for our time beyond mm-hmm. uh, the Catholic faith. Faith, and he, he said this early on, which is that you know the Catholics shouldn't be defined by the things that they're against, right? Whether whether it be divorce, right, or, or homosexuality, right? I mean, he, he's he's opened his arms to, to uh, a lot of things that his predecessor certainly did not. But think of the time that we are in, in, in our, not just our politics as a nation, but just our culture as a nation, yeah. where, you know, that message, boy, that, that, that it's certainly valuable. Yeah, no, no question about it. No question about it. You, uh, you said that, being a Jesuit is one of the reasons that led you to your career. Mm-hmm. But I assume the other piece is that your mom yeah. was a journalist. No question. She, you know, huge influence. And my mom was a journalist, uh, a female journalist at a time when she was she was a pioneer, really. I mean, she, she's a Louisville girl in the 50s. Uh, she, she worked first for a radio station there, WHAS. Um, and she was the only woman in the newsroom. And then she went to New York, and that was her dream, and, and she worked mostly for magazines at that point. Uh, but again, th- this was a, you know, different 
culture when it came to women in any professional yeah. work, workplace, yeah. um, particularly in journalism. She faced that. That was a huge challenge for her, and she was a role model for me and, and for my three sisters. Um, but also, it, it was inspiration in terms of a career, but also, I think, in terms of the way you live your life. Because beyond journalism, for, from a very young age, she encourages us to write, not necessarily because we would be you know, writing for a newspaper someday, but just to because when you write, you think, and you're processing your life, yeah. and you're remembering, um, but you're also building kind of a framework. I mean, the other thing that she... she now, did your sisters go... Did any of them become journalists no, or they, writers? No, they, they didn't. Um, one, one's a doctor. One, one's involved in diversity, uh, diversity and, and corporate social responsibility, and the other's an actress. So we, we're, like, we're like all <laughs> over the place. Got the bases covered. We do. Um, but I think all of us have a... Um, I think uh, she, she taught us a, an openness to the world and um, a desire to, to, to see and explore our world and try to make a difference. Which That's, is the great thing about journalism is it gives you uh, – I mean, you, you're out there and you're asking people about their stories and inquiring, yeah. and um, it's, it's, it's a great thing. My mom mm-hmm. uh, was a, uh, also one of these pioneers. She was a, a – a reporter at PM, which was a newspaper mm-hmm. in New York in the 40s, uh, and she was one of the few women in the newsroom mm-hmm. and became a magazine writer, ultimately went on to other things. But it was tough for women at that time to uh, – you had to be determined to, no to, to do that work. To get ahead, I mean, she tells the stories of – I mean, you talk about misogyny today. I mean, then – you know, you're an object, right? And 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 that that takes that takes a steely woman to do that. Yeah. And then she also had four kids, right, in the, yeah. in the '60s and '70s, and balancing raising children with, with having a career at a time when you you know there there were no there was no childcare in the office, right? I mean, you had to you had to make it you had to make it work. When you went uh, you went off to Yale, as I mentioned before, mm-hmm. and you studied Chinese history. Uh, what led you to Chinese history? Well, I'll tell you, this is this is a true story. I was uh, I was a freshman at Yale in, in 1989, and my my one of my sisters was actually living uh, in Taiwan at the time, and, and my parents and another of my sisters went to visit her, and they went to Beijing in late May 1989 just to, to tour, and they found themselves in the middle of the Tiananmen demonstrations, and we, we have family pictures of my parents and sisters in the middle of Tiananmen, surrounded by these students, um, you know, this this moment of celebration, feeling like they were on the cusp of history of changing the country. Uh, they left Beijing the day martial law was declared, and then uh, a few days later, of course, you, you had the massacre. And, it, and this happened to be the time where I'm choosing my major. It's the end of your freshman year. And, and at the time, you know, 90% of the kids studying history at Yale, which, of course, is the major you have if you have no idea what you want to do with your life. But uh, <laughs> um, we're, we're going into sort of political history or European history. And I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to study Chinese history. I want to, I want to just – and listen, I didn't – you know, I didn't make Even that, though you weren't there, just, no, I wasn't. just by dint of their – uh, accounts of what happened. Experience huh? of it, yeah. And it's funny, a few weeks ago, I was emptying out some of my mom's old stuff, and my mom passed away 10 years ago, and I came across, uh, she saved a bunch of newspapers from then, from Asia. They were in Asia at the time. They were sort of in Japan afterwards and later, but you know, the, the, the headline coverage from the region, and she wrote about it herself, too, just being, and she, as she said, an accidental witness to history. And I think that that was also part of, you know, 
how I found myself to journalism too, because as you say, you know, this is this is your way to explore the world, world, witness history, and 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 help you know you know the old cliche, write the first draft of history. Yeah, you uh, you did some journalism though as well while you were. At, at I Yale. did. So so after college, and again, I still had no idea. I, I had ideas, but I didn't have a great career plan. So you know, what better plan than to apply for a fellowship, right? <laughs> so I went I went to, to Asia to Hong Kong as a Fulbright fellow, which is a fantastic. Program. Program and was the you know one of the greatest gifts I was ever given, uh, and ended up staying there to work as a journalist in, in Hong Kong for a dinky little television station that still had typewriters in the newsroom. I mean, this was the '90s; they still had it, and you know, got paid nothing, but was able to travel around the region and, and, and cover what was going on at the time. And it was it was a kid's dream, you know, it was a young a young journalist dream. And um, I don't want to jump ahead in the story. Uh, but you had several postings in journalism, including here in Chicago uh, and then London as a foreign correspondent for mm-hmm. ABC. But you took uh, a break from journalism and you actually entered uh, government as an aide to the ambassador to China. So the, you've you've been steeped in China for a very long time. I know. You know, it's funny. I, I joke in my family, I'm, I'm Irish-Italian, right, that we have some distant Asian relative because <laughs> uh, four or five of us, have been, my, two, two of my sisters, myself, we, we've spent time in Asia um, for, for different reasons at different times, but but it's always fascinated me as, 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 a, as a place. And I, you know, at the time, I, I'd just come back from a decade in London covering uh, covering the world, really, but principally the Middle East and principally the wars in the Middle East. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. But I- and and I came back to I felt it was time to come back to the U.S. and I and I found myself um, a little bit suffocated by Washington. And I didn't expect you, to. You wouldn't be the first, my friend. I know. <laughs> There's a, there should be a help group for that. <laughs> um, a little suffocated, and I, and I got what was what was certainly not an expected offer to 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 go work for for the at the time the new ambassador to, to China, Gary Locke, and it was. You guys uh, met because you were interviewing him, or how did that I, come about? We met at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Uh-huh. You know, again, it was it was a you know not not a planned you know uh-huh. certainly not a planned professional uh, encounter, um, and I and I had a fa- fascination with China, and I and I I felt and I still feel that this is the. The principal superpower relationship of our time, I, I suppose, with Russia now, it's a principle. But but in yeah, many but ways, in the big sweep of things, uh, the Chinese, the China, the relationship with China is is probably more determinative. I think so, especially particularly when you think of the the, 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 size the degree to which the, well the size and the degree to which our our economic futures and fortunes are intertwined. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and for me, it was it was an opportunity to see it from the inside. And, and and learn and, and there was a family aspect to this too that that my wife by by good luck and and just her her talent was offered the ABC job to be Beijing correspondent at the same time and we're thinking we had two kids we moved to Washington and we asked a friend of ours and and, and we had just moved back to the states and here we were going overseas again and and they gave my wife actually some good advice because they had faced a decision like this a few years before. And they said, you know what? We realized the decision came down to either remodeling our kitchen or going to China. We're like, let's go to China. The kids will learn <laughs> Chinese. We'll both have an adventure. And it was great. It was a great adventure. But, but we came back with... We should know, point out your wife is Gloria Rivera. Gloria Rivera. Distinguished journalist in her own right. For, for ABC. For ABC. Yes. And, and it was a family adventure. And we learned. I certainly learned a lot. She learned a lot. The kids came back speaking Chinese. We traveled all over the region. And... Um, you know, I wouldn't trade it. I wouldn't trade it for anything. So this is 
kind of a propitious moment to talk about this because as we record this conversation, the president's about to sit down for a summit with uh, President Xi, uh, and uh, we have the North Koreans firing missiles off and ever closer to the possibility of an intercontinental missile that could hit the U.S. Um, What is the state of play both between the U.S. and China right now and uh, on the issue of North Korea? How do you see this playing out? Well, on China first, it is undetermined. Right. I mean, this has been a difficult relationship uh, for years. Neither side has quite figured out this conundrum, which is which here, you know, a rising power and an existing power. Right. And and and, you know, that creates tensions that are real, creates economic tensions, but but military tensions in in the region. Um, The Obama administration, of course, you you know, worked worked hard at this for eight years and, um, you know, left with with some continuing Issues. I mean, one being the man-made islands, uh, North Korea, though and the South China Sea, South China, and the South China Sea, and North Korea still unresolved. So, so you have a new administration coming in, and his public positions during the campaign, and, and on trade as Pretty well. Pretty bellicose, absolutely. When to shake it up, they they've been they've been abusing us for years. I mean, very strong words. I'm going to turn it around, and then even on the issue of North Korea. If they don't help us, I'm going to do it on my own. You know, this this is Trump's at least his public his public position. Um, the trouble is that that multiple administrations of different parties for really decades have struggled with this, and and haven't quite found the way forward. So what's not clear is what's truly going to be different about the Trump administration approach. We we've heard the rhetoric now that that rhetoric has toned down a bit. You have interestingly the the departure of Steve Bannon. Yes. From the National Security Council. Yes, right on the eve of this summit, my speculation, uninformed, was Mm -hmm. this was a signal to the Chinese that there was going to be a different posture than they feared because Steve Bannon is the most vocal critic of China in the president's council. Yeah, and you hear this talk that that, that deep down he, he, he... he he believes that conflict with China is inevitable, right? And um, I mean, he's not alone in that. But that's a you know that that, that can become a self fulfilling absolutely prophecy. no question. So listen, it, it'll be interesting to see um, what is presented. You know, where do they attempt to find common ground? North Korea is the most immediate threat, and you hear this uh, you hear this from folks like former director of national intelligence, James Clapper, as he left from the Obama administration, apparently one of their parting notes to the Trump administration was, North Korea is your most pressing national security risk. And I, and I hear that from nat- national security folks all the time. ISIS, terrorism, no question, Russia, but North Korea is the most immediate. Um, this is, again, one of those issues where, yes, the U.S. and China both say uh, they want to hold North Korea back, but at the same time, they also have competing interests, right? Because China isn't particularly happy about a unified North Korea, if that uh, unified Korean Peninsula, if that was ever going to happen. North Korea is really China's only ally in the region. And a lot of the folks in the Chinese military, old school, they're like, we kind of like having North Korea uh, as a friend. Plus, you know, from a military standpoint, if China looks at the U.S. as its prime competitor, North Korea is a nice distraction for the U.S. as well. Right, because if we're riled up in there, then we can't be entirely focused on on challenging. Kind of a mixed China. bag, though. You know, uh, I know China is is perturbed about the anti missile system that the mm-hmm. U.S. is installing in South Korea because they feel like yeah. it's 
in some ways a hedge against them. So, you know, more stepped up U.S. presence as a result of North Korea Absolutely. is also viewed as a threat to China. So it is a mixed bag for them. It is, no question. It's 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 Which is a point I, I presume I mean, I don't know what the president will mm-hmm. say, but I, if, if you were advising him, you would make those points. Absolutely. I mean, this is one of those things where it'd be nice to say if we were just tougher on them, then we can get what we want, right? But the, but, but the difficulty is you have competing interests on, on a number of issues that, that are never going to be rectified. So what's the potential common ground? Which is really what diplomacy is about. Absolutely. Nobody gets 100% of what they want. Never. It can't and you be- can't force your will. Especially in a relationship like this. No, quite. That's why, you know, this idea, you know, it's not a real estate deal, right? <laughs> um, are there areas? Uh, I mean, for one, you, you know, you, you can argue that the nuclear threat is, is the primary um, desire for the U.S., controlling that nuclear threat. And, and, and you can see that, that not just China, but also Russia, other, other countries w- would feel the same way. You know, could you say, well, we don't, you know, it's less important for the U.S. to have a unified North Korea, right? Because China doesn't particularly want a U.S. ally on its border. Is that the way? You could say that's a, that's a priority for, for mm-hmm. down the line, and we're going to focus on this now, make a concession there. You know, those are some of the outlines, but there are a lot of smart people who've tried this for years and haven't quite been able different to find Different now, that. though, because uh, the sense of urgency has to be different now because with the Koreans creeping up on potential – the potential of hitting Los Angeles yes. or San Francisco, then it becomes really a fundamental core interest. We were talking before mm-hmm. the Chinese like to lecture America on what their core interests mm-hmm. are, Taiwan and uh, Tibet and all of that. Yes. Um, you know, here's the thing. It's, it, it, you know, the, we're seeing – this week we saw the use of weapons of mass destruction in Syria, right? And it's not the first time the Syrian regime has right. used chemical weapons. It's not nuclear weapons. Chemical weapons, pretty bad. Right. North Korea used – in effect, a chemical weapon in an airport to kill yes. to, to kill someone, you know, in, in, in an airport in, in Malaysia. The, uh, the leader's half-brother. Exactly. You, you know, as, as these things get used more often, it makes it easier to use it the next time. Now, now, nukes are a different animal, but if you look at North Korea's military plans, they have in their outlook, it's believed by the U.S., small-scale, quote-unquote, small-scale use of nuclear weapons, tactical nukes, where not just sending a missile to, to Los Angeles, which which would be catastrophic, of course, but more difficult than putting a tactical nuke in an artillery shell, right, and putting it on Seoul. And, it, you know, these are steps that are conceivable for yeah. North Korea. And, that, and, that's and, thing and, that, and it has to be in the calculation. The president said, well, uh, if the Chinese don't deal with this, we'll, we'll deal with it, implying that somehow there was a military solution to this. Uh, but if the U.S. were to hit North Korea, presumably North Korea would immediately hit Seoul. Absolutely, and they have. If you look at the plans, and I, you know, they they have so many um, weapons trained on Seoul to, to to make it extremely costly for the U.S. and for our ally. North South Korea and Seoul. It's a heavy, heavily populated city. You have you have several tens of thousands of U.S. troops there as well. Not to mention untold number of Americans and South Koreans that that would they would die in a conflict like that. This is this is this is the real deal. Yeah, the Chinese can't have been happy about the uh, North Koreans firing off another missile on the eve of this meeting between uh, Xi and uh, Trump. No question. And then, but you wonder. 
you know, there's, there's a question of how much leverage does China use? That's one question. But also the question of how much leverage does China have? It's got an enormous amount of leverage, um, and it could, you know, economically, right? I mean, it could supplies stop. supplies like 90% of their fuel. It, does. it supplies a lot of their food. You could stop that tomorrow, right? You could bring the bring the regime to its heels, but then China worries about collapse of the regime right. and, and flooding it, floods of people uh, over of the border as well. And, and, yeah. and this is something that you know, just as Kim Jong Un and North Korea and his father and his father before that uh, play that fear, you know, against the U.S. They they play it against China too, you know, and and they know that it's you know you you know this. Is better than me that you know people always talk about how crazy you know the North Korean leader is. The truth is not that crazy. I mean, you you know, ruthless, no question, but from a from a but it's a rational though brutal plan of survival that's worked for them mm-hmm. against the odds. Arguably, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with Jim Shuto. You mentioned earlier that you had uh, spent several years covering the wars in, mm. uh, in, in, in the war in Iraq, um, the uh, byplay between the U.S. and mm. Iran. You were in Iran during the very eventful election, I think, in mm. 2009. Uh, and you wrote a book in 2008 about uh, how people in the region saw the U.S., mm. Uh, and I was really interested in that because it comes into play again. But tell me what you learned from your experiences uh, during that period of time, what you learned about what the U.S. options are in, in real, in real mm-hmm. life and what the consequences of these decisions are. Well, to the point of departure for that book was I was living in London uh, in 2005 during the, the, the subway bombings, the, the 7-7 attack. Um, and then, if you may remember, two weeks later, there was a failed attack, uh, very similar, where the bombs just didn't go off on a bus and a subway, you know, just, just by, by dumb luck. And as it turned out, one, two of those failed bombers lived down the street from me. They, they were discovered in, 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 a, in a flat uh, in Notting Hill. Uh, that's where they were arrested after, after they, you know, the, the, the attacks didn't come off. Um, and it just struck me as here I'm living in Notting Hill, you know, Notting Hill in London, which is this sort of you know, you know, well it used to be hippie neighborhood. Now it's now it's kind of a posh neighborhood. But but you would think you know it's where Hugh Grant and you know <laughs> and others kind of kind of kind of play around. And yet he said a few bombs himself. But a, that's another. Well, story. exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, here were two kids from that neighborhood uh, who were going to kill themselves and take a lot of people with them. And why is that? You know, where, where did that, how is that possible? And it just got me down the path of, of looking at, um, looking at extremism, not in the places that we normally look for it and trying to break that caricature that it's just crazy, wild eyed, long bearded dudes from Iraq who are drawn into this movement. And in fact, it's second generation Muslim teenagers in the UK. Uh, and I ended up going around the region and talking to the, to, the, to the unexpected folks, mainstream Muslims who have this anger against the U.S., some of whom, not, not all of whom by any means go to the path of extremism or violent extremism, jihad, but many who look at the U.S. as a bad actor. And why is that? And, and why was it? Well, it, it's a number of things. I mean, one... 
uh, made the point in the book that it's not purely or even principally religion from from my perspective from from their perspective and I'm not justifying I'm just saying the way they explain it to me they look at it as a matter of policy they look at the US as as an actor that targeted them because of their faith and that that for all its talk of being a democratic multicultural power had it in for the Muslims and bombs Muslims and uh, kills innocents and, and uses military power against Muslims. And, and again, this is principally because of Afghanistan and Iraq? Yes, but 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 also relationship with Israel. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the way they look at it, it's... It, it's uh, and this is, you know, I traveled around. I went to Egypt. I went to, to, to Lebanon. Uh, I profiled in there a Christian girl in Lebanon who had this view of the U.S., you know. So, so for her, clearly wasn't religion. Right, yeah. Um, but in addition to that, it, it was also... Yeah, I compared it to kind of a 1960s uh, youth culture movement that it that it was identity as well. It's 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 a cause mm-hmm. that that young people in particular, but not exclusively young people, were attracted to as as a way to uh, push back at perceived humiliation, to give them kind of something to define themselves. And th- part of the reason I wrote it was that that I I thought that the caricature doesn't help us solve the problem. Now, there's no question there are folks who fit that character. You, you and I have dealt with them. Uh, you know, the, the folks, I was in Paris for the Charlie Hebdo attacks, for the, for the attacks afterwards. I've seen and covered dozens of terror attacks and met the people and, and seen the bloodshed. These are bad people. You're not going to convince them, you know, many of them. But then there, there are other folks that y- you have to address the ideology because you can't solve it purely through military force. You just can't. And well, in fact, you could make the argument that if you're overly reliant on military force, that you exacerbate the problem. And that's what that's what many of them would tell me. And now, now it, it's it, it takes a very wise man or woman to, to get that balance right, you know. And there's no question that military force is necessary, but there's another part to that fight. And and that you know, in a way, I kind of wrote that book too early, you know, because. Um, you know, it's only more recently that we've become aware that that ideology has its adherence in our own country as well. Right. Well, that is the, um, I mean, that's sort of a fundamental point because um, we now, we've in these first months of the Trump administration, we've seen the implementation of a travel ban that was widely viewed as a, a Muslim uh, ban on the theory that we need to yeah. keep people out of the country who might do harm to us. But the reality is the great threat now isn't really from people coming in across the border. It's from people who are here and who are radicalized yeah. by, uh, you know, things they see in social media and their reaction to events. And in that sense, you wonder whether the travel ban doesn't actually accelerate that movement yeah. and make us less safe. Well, I'll tell you, I, I talked to a lot of folks in the counterterror space and the intelligence space, and when the travel ban was introduced, and I'm talking about both parties or who served both administrations, and none of them said to me that the travel ban, one, was necessary or would really have a positive effect. In fact, many of them concerned about the negative effect. And you've seen this in, in public comments from some pretty tough guys, right? The General McChrystals of the world. These guys are not wilting flowers. Uh, they've seen this battle on the front lines and know that uh, it is it is a hard power battle, but it's also a soft power battle. So I think on the travel ban, you have two points. One, clearly there are folks in our country, so it's, it's a domestic problem. But also that, you know, is it, it's a heavy-handed tactic 
that when you speak to the CT folks, the counter-terror folks and others, they worry about it having a, uh, a damaging effect, you know, creating hostility, uh, exacerbating hostility um, for minimal actual security benefit. Yeah, we've seen two presidents, Bush and Obama, wrestle with this, both of whom were very careful to separate out extremism from uh, the vast majority. A quarter of the Mm -hmm. world practices Islam, is um, Muslim, and, um, you know, the vast majority of them have nothing to do with this. But um, it is a very hard thing to strike uh, the balance, Obama, as you'll remember, you may have been there, the first, uh, one of his first sojourns in 2009 after he became president was to Cairo that mm-hmm. spring. I was there. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the, he was trying to address the broader Muslim world and separate them from, uh, you know, the extremists who were committing these acts. Mm-hmm. And sometimes at the expense of, of other Muslims, but... Um, at the same time, he had to prosecute these wars, yeah. had to protect the American uh, uh, homeland, and um, sort of, you know, it, it, you can, the words he used and the symbols he tried to invoke were ones that were meant to reach out. But then you have drone strikes, you have, you, have, you know, in, advance, in, in advancing the interest of trying to defeat terrorists, collateral damage, no matter how much you try to limit it. And, and the, there's a lot of fodder with which the propagandists can work. Yes, no question. It's, you know, it's interesting. I was there for the speech in Cairo. I remember the, I remember the uh, anticipation and, and the excitement. And, and, you know, people, it resonated. I, I sat, I, was, I, I didn't actually, I wasn't in the room on purpose. I was in a cafe in Cairo kind of watching people, yeah. watching it on TV and speaking to them about it. Um, but it's interesting in, in that in that part of the, of the world, because I'm sure you've heard this as well, because, you know, I spent the bulk of my time in, in, in the Middle East during the George W. Bush presidency, the Iraq War, in the worst years of the, of the Iraq War. And of course, you heard, you know, the criticism, you, you came here to kill Muslim, Muslims, it was really for the oil, uh, you know, etc. A lot of hatred for him. Initial hope for Barack Obama, but I'll tell you, by the end of his term, you would hear from a lot of folks in those countries, and I'll, I'll speak to them in the government, or I'll speak to them, the man on the street, as it were, or the woman on the street, uh, that he was too weak. You know, we want a decision maker. Be, you know, good riddance, Barack Obama. You know, in a way, as an American leader, you can't win, right? In that world, because either you're too tough or you're too soft, and it's and it's 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 a difficult it's a difficult balance to strike. Granted, that's not your job. Your job is to 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 serve American interests and protect American interests. But on the flip side, you could say it's difficult to win that, uh, win Part that of battle it, as well. Not, not in any way to uh, – I'm, I'm neither a foreign policy expert nor am I a spokesperson for, for uh, President Obama. But some of those Sunni Arab states really wanted America to fight yes. these wars for them. Absolutely. And, uh, and he recognized that if America was the point of the spear – that uh, you'd only make worse this problem that you described in your book, uh, which is to antagonize more and more people and make America more and more the target of this activity. And that's the delicate balance that Mm -hmm. was very difficult to say. And then on top of that, you had the weariness of the American people of endless war and uh, and, and not just... um, 
not just the uh, the cost of them, which was in the trillions, but the human toll, which was which was tremendous. So, yeah, these are uh, what did President Trump say about uh, health care? Who knew that it was so complicated? Yeah. This is this is complicated stuff. Yes. Um, but um, uh, when you look back at all of this, um, what what are the decision points that you as a, as someone who critiques American foreign policy, mm-hmm. you say maybe we should have done something different. Well, listen, I uh, the Iraq invasion. It, it's it's and again, I'm not a policymaker, but but it's it, it's hard to see how that was the right choice. Um, and and I was there uh, before it. I was there during it. I was with U.S. Special Forces as they came down from the north and just, you know, from both sides swept into the country. And it was so easy. And I I remember that feeling. I remember being, in fact, my first date with my wife was in May in Baghdad. I took, you know, this was a time in Baghdad when you could take your wife for a date. We sat by the pool and we drank beers. Uh, That disappeared very, very quickly. Mine was at a Chicago Bulls game. So yours is a more It's pretty much the same, you know. (laughs) Um, The... You know, you look at, first of all, I spent a lot of time with U.S. soldiers there and the tremendous cost to, to the U.S. military. And as you know, on a tiny percentage of the U.S. population, without the draft, it's, it's a tiny sliver of the population, both the servicemen and women and their families who, who bear this burden, multiple deployments through time, which continues to this day. That cost, um, the thought about the next step or the, 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 mm-hmm. the limited or, or non-existent thought about what follows uh, the invasion. I saw each of those. I saw each of those things. And um, in fact, I remember I was, I was in Jerusalem and I was at a dinner party with a bunch of other journalists on the eve of the Iraq invasion. And I always remember this because I remember uh, in that room, uh, there was the, the sense that, well, you know, maybe this maybe it's hard as an American on the, on the eve of war not to be excited about it, right? You know, this is, we're all together in this. Uh, but folks in the room, I, I will remember thinking, oh, this, yeah, the, maybe he's got it right. You know, maybe we should, you know, you should go in there and get rid of this guy. And I, the first thought I had was like, that's, that's not really our job as journalists, right? We should, our job should be, okay, let's watch it and let's ask the hard questions. But I also, I look back at that to see that as a country, we got swept up in that. And it's the application. Well, there's no doubt. You yeah. Know, that you go look back at that moment. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Obama's political career in certain ways um, was built on the fact that he was running for the Senate at the time. And yeah. almost every other Democrat in the race yeah. was for the invasion. Mm-hmm. And he spoke against it. And that sort of marked him as a different kind of uh, politician. Well, I'll say more recently than you look. And again, I'm not I'm not the policymaker, and I, and I and I haven't sat in the real situation room when when, when a when a leader of the free As world. As opposed to Wolf Blitzer. Well, exactly. That, the, mo- the more important one I've been in. <laughs> no, but the, the, when you have to make the, the, the no. most difficult decision you make as a president, right, which is the application of deadly force. Yes. Um, you look then at. Uh, the response to Ukraine, and I spent a lot of time in Russia. I've been to Ukraine, etc. You know, was the, you know was that strong enough? And I'm not saying should the U.S. have rolled tanks in there against against the Russians, but you look at the effects, and I think I think people forget history pretty quickly, and that that it wasn't long ago that um, you know that Eastern Europe was under the sway of of the Soviet Union. Uh, it wasn't long ago that Europe was fighting itself, and these institutions and unity they make a difference, you know. And and early, you know, a lot of people made the comparison between that and 
you know, 1939 Europe and accommodation, yes. et cetera. And I, and I don't think that that, that is, I, I'm an amateur student of history. I don't think that that's an un, uh, you know, an unconnected reference to make, comparison to make that, that sometimes you got, and this is, you know, I'm an observer, I'm a journalist, uh, I'm not the decision maker, but that you, you see the consequences both of uh, overreaction and underreaction, you know, yeah. through time. Yeah. We're going to uh, take another short break and we'll be right back with Jim Shuto. On the subject of Russia, you know, in uh, 2012, Mitt Romney and, and President Obama were debating, and Romney made the case that Russia was the greatest threat that mm-hmm. the U.S. faced, and, and Obama ridiculed for him for it in the debate. Russia's obviously, Putin has been very audacious, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, w- what is your sense of their role in the world, right? And what, what is Putin's design here? Uh, what is he after? I'll tell you, when, when I, whenever I sit down with, a, say, Director Clapper or, or, or Brennan and ask them that kind of obvious question, give me your top five threats right now, you know, in the last couple of years, Russia has always been at the top or near the top of that list. North Korea possibly uh, more immediate, but but Russia is, is a truly existential threat because it is a nuclear power, but also because of the, the many places where our interests are conflicting with them. Russia is a real threat, and, and, and in a number of ways, if you talk to the military guys, this is a country that is building up its military, uh, particularly in areas where they sense weakness in the U.S. They, they, they have more advanced submarines. You know, they're picking places where they can compete. You know, they're not going to suddenly build 12 aircraft carriers, but they have better submarines that are harder for the U.S. to track. That's a problem because they put nukes on submarines, right? And that's a, that's a, that's a real threat. That's an existential threat. Um, so from a military perspective, they are a true and competitive adversary and an increasingly dangerous one. And then in terms of the willingness to use force, you know, uh, clearly in, in Ukraine, clearly in Crimea, clearly now in Syria, uh, and in places that impact U.S. interests. And, and we talked about nukes as it relates to, to, to North Korea. If you look at Russian military plans, they call for the use of tactical nukes in, in conflicts. You know that again. That may I don't want to say far fetched. That may be an unlikely escalation, but that you can't eliminate the possibility of truly catastrophic escalation, um, and that's that's a real concern. And whenever I talk to the guys who know the classified intel far better than me. They always put Russia at or near the top of the list in terms of threats. So we're in this peculiar situation now because we have a president who has taken, a, at least as a candidate, uh, a, um, an oddly warm posture toward Russia, even as, uh, as you say, the threat has escalated in the minds mm-hmm. of the national security people uh, you talk to. Um, You've spent a lot of time looking at this lately. Mm-hmm. Um, what is uh, Donald Trump's fascination with Russia? It's so we don't know. We don't know for sure. Um, it, it is a odd contradiction with not just the sort of foreign policy military establishment, but with his own most senior advisors, right? Because if you hear the public comments of uh, of a Mattis, 
um, McMaster as national security advisor and others, they all say, and Republican leaders in in the Senate and and the House, they say without hesitation, Russia's a threat. Russia interfered in our election. Uh, This is a real problem. We got to figure out a way to be tougher on them, etc. So why is that? I mean, it seems that... that, that We should point out that these are all new associates of the president, new aides to the president. None of them were with him in the election. Exactly. Um, but they're now in, in powerful positions in the Trump administration. You know, you know it, it, seems, it seems likely that he has an association with that, that talk of Russia speaks to illegitimacy. For him, the talk of interference because of the election. Because of the election, if if he if he uh, speaks publicly about Russia and the seriousness of Russian interference, that that somehow undermines his victory. There's that. Um, now, on the national security threat, why? For instance, we just had a chemical weapons attack in Syria. His his uh, UN ambassador calls out Russia for backing the Syrian regime. The president does not, you know, in that. He, 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 he did it nine hours later. Yeah. He, he put out a statement. He did, but but I don't believe he, he go, calling he out the call Syrian out Russia, regime, but not calling Syrian out Russia. Justice. That's exactly right. And we know, you know, Syrian regime would not exist without Russian support. So There's also a sidebar to this thing, which is that Russia was supposed to be a co-guarantor of this agreement right. to get chemical weapons out of Syria. And obviously, there are still chemical weapons in Syria, and the Russians, you know, uh, uh, blamed the rebels for uh, the. They, they, they said it was a rebel right. chemical weapon cache that right. was that was bombed, and it was sort of incidental, collateral, exactly damage. But so, so, but uh, uh, you know, that's a canard in the. I think in the estimation of most people. Well, and, and the U.S. military said, you know, they, they identify the, the, the Syria, and they, they have got ways of looking at this kind of stuff that yes. the Syrian regime did it. So, so you know, the election stuff is one thing, but why not the why not the ability to publicly state what his entire intelligence apparatus states as fact, his his military leaders states as fact. Why why is it that he won't say in public? Russia's a threat, and we have to stand up to Russia. Um, I don't know. Is he moving closer to that? Possibly. Um, what are his personal connections in the past? Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, I think that, look, I think we should be candid. That's one of the questions that people ask is, mm-hmm. are, there, are there reasons of, through association, pecuniary reasons, mm-hmm. other reasons that might influence him uh, in this way? But as you point out, we, we should also not underestimate the fact that um, this is a guy who has virtually no experience right. in any of these realms. And um, it may be that we're seeing his foreign policy formulated uh, as, we, as we speak, as we watch him. Uh, we've seen changes in his national security mm-hmm. team. Mm-hmm. Uh, Flynn obviously is gone. Uh, he was viewed as close to, uh, close to Russia. Mm-hmm. Now we've seen this, as you referenced earlier the demotion of Steve Bannon who mm. was his inclusion on the National Security Council got a lot of attention I think deservedly at the beginning now he's been mm-hmm. demoted and you get the sense that Mattis General McMaster who I'm sure you know uh, and some of the more traditional national security thinkers are slowly getting control of the national security um, uh, portfolio. Well, possible, but you don't know, right? Because you don't know who's making the decisions, 
right? And, and, and who, you don't know who truly, we don't know yet who truly has the presidents here. And I think that's a fair question because even in the Obama administration, some of the cabinet secretaries didn't hold sway as much as some of the, the, the closest advisors in the White House. And, and is there a similar dynamic in the Trump White House? Very, very possibly. What, to what degree? The other difference is that Obama himself had a pretty well-developed worldview. He did, no question. Um, but, you know, to, to be fair, it wouldn't be the first time that, that, a, that, a, that a White House advisor has the, has the presidency here more than, than one of the heads of the departments. Well, you, hear, you heard that grousing all through the Obama administration, yes. you know, cabinet members. Absolutely. Uh, particularly in the national security realm, saying, you know, those guys have too much power. Yes. They shouldn't be involved as much as they are. Exactly. So it's not unusual. It's not unusual, but it's not. And again, it's it's not equivalent. What, what is unusual is that the, the, there's such a wide gulf between the views of a Steve Bannon and a Jim Mattis, for example. No question, and that's the thing. And and and, and like I said earlier, you have public uh, contradiction between the head of state and some of his most senior advisors on the most central national security issues, at least in public. You know, I don't know if in private, the president says to a Mattis, trust me, I know the Russians are a threat and I know we got to deal with them today. I don't know. We don't know that. But, but in public, the statements are often very different. So if you're a foreign leader, and now I'm asking you to put both your correspondent <laughs> and your brief but meaningful experience inside as a diplomat, if you're a foreign leader, what do you do with that? How do you figure out who, who's who in the zoo? You're you're confused. I've I've heard it in this administration from diplomats from from many countries, cl- including close to U.S. allies. They don't know, and they've struggled, and they've tried to find. And you've seen reporting this on as, as well. Who in the White House do I need to talk to? I mean, you hear that question all the time, and they, you know they've been struggling since the, since the election through the transition and since the inauguration to find that out. Um, you do get a sense that some of these appointments have given them greater confidence, right? Cause, cause Although increasingly, uh, the answer to the question seems to be Jared Kushner. Right, right? the I secretary mean, of everything. We did, we did a story on that a couple of days ago. Yeah, uh, but I mean, you know, he seems to be the principal intermediary with the Chinese right mm. now. Uh, he's been appointed to uh, oversee the Middle East peace uh, process. And we know that he had some interactions with the Russians. Right. Um, doesn't that sort of marginalize your Secretary of State and create more? I mean, why would people talk to the Secretary of State if they don't think he's the guy who actually has the smack with the president? Absolutely. No, that, that's an open question because they, they need to know that. And it, 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 we all noted uh, with interest that Jared Kushner went to Iraq before the Secretary of State went to Iraq. Um, you know, Jared Kushner has had meetings with senior Russian officials. Till- Secretary Tillerson is now going to Russia. But but who who has the presidency here? Because that's the key question for the foreign leaders and diplomats, because that's the person they want to talk to, because they, when that person speaks, they know they're hearing what the actual policy is, because they are, they are confused by the contradiction between the public statements of the president and, and many of his senior advisors. I think the simplest answer is they don't know. They don't know yet. Yeah, and that's you know, a problem. President said he said as we speak he had a he had a joint press conference with King Abdullah of Jordan mm-hmm. today, and during that press conference he was asked about what he was going to do about uh, Iran, Syria, and so mm-hmm. on, and he said what he said so many other times. I don't I don't tip my mitt. I, I want you know I want mm-hmm. 
I mean, he, he clings to this notion that unpredictability is an advantage mm-hmm. in a policymaker. But for the world, predictability is important. Yeah. Under, understanding that they can count on certain things yeah. from America uh, is important. Yeah. I mean, we saw that with uh, with NATO, right? I mean, you had these public statements criticizing NATO. And that I went uh, a couple of weeks ago to Estonia, NATO ally, Eastern Europe, literally on the border with Russia. It's been it's been the target of Russian cyber attacks and military activity along the border. They're nervous because those public statements they actually have meaning for them. It's not a theoretical threat to them, the possibility that the U.S. would not – enforce NATO Article 5 and defend a NATO ally if it's invaded. You know, that that's not a sort of dream. That's not theoretical. That, that, that is a, that's a real danger to them. So they need reassurance, and they will get it from some uh, in Washington and the White House, but then they'll hear a contradictory statement from the president himself, and that's that worries the heck out of them. And then, then so that's an ally. Then you look at a China, a frenemy, right, mm-hmm. however you characterize it, but, you know, you talk about certainty and predictability. China values that beyond anything, and and they are attuned to to slight changes in rhetoric, right? Uh, a word here or there, because you know a lot of these words have meaning, and they've been negotiated and battled over time. You know, a new power relationship. What, what did you think by what uh, Tillerson said when he was over there about uh, he he used language uh, about mutual respect yeah. and and some other language that. That seem innocuous to the naked eye, but have been uh, wrestled about with the Chinese for decades. Right. And they got the language that they wanted to hear to justify the conclusion they wanted to draw about what the parameters of the relationship are. Exactly. Because, they, they, you know, that, that kind of stuff, it, it, it's, it's co- they're code words, in effect, for the uh, accommodation of Chinese interests, right? Mutual respect. It sort of says, well, you know. We'll respect where you are, but this is Asia, by the way. Right. And we, you know, those islands are So you're going to stay out of the South China Sea. Exactly. So, and he seemed to be, it almost parroted a Chinese foreign ministry press release. Now, was that accidental? I mean, this is another thing about the Obama administration, because a lot of this is, you know, a lot of these key positions aren't filled yet. The Obama or the Trump administration? Sorry, the Trump administration. They're not filled yet. So, you know, the the infrastructure you need to, to... to properly communicate this, brief your leaders before they have their meetings. It doesn't exist. So you don't know, uh, you know, we don't know, and, and our foreign friends and enemies and frenemies don't know for sure if this is because the policy is still developing or it, it's actually a change in policy. And that, you know, that's a problem. It's a problem. How uh, concerned are you? You talked about the Russian incursion uh, in our election. They apparently are trying to do the same yeah. uh, in the European elections this year in France, Germany. Um, how big a threat is is are cyber incursions like that? Not just into the into democracies, but also into the economic systems and. Enormous power I mean, systems. Can't be. We did a documentary on this last year about cyber capabilities. The you know first of all we know this, and you speak to the NSA, and they, they'll tell you this. China and Russia have the ability to to access and disable critical infrastructure in the U.S. So power grids, you know th- things like cell phone towers, this this kind of thing. They can do that already. They haven't chosen to do it yet, uh, but they've certainly probed the system. So you could turn the lights off, you know, in, in Washington, say. Um, so that's one space 
have the capability, haven't used it. You know, this the election interference, which was less direct, arguably more subtle to some degree, but by any measure, influential, right? No, no one's saying it changed the course of the election, changed votes in the election. They didn't get to the voting processes, but it certainly injected itself into the election. I mean, the, the you know, the, these hacked emails were um, more than just part of the conversation. Without question. No yeah. question. Then you have this other element that we're beginning to get more detail on, which was fake news, you know, not what Trump calls CNN, but actual fake news uh, targeting particular districts in particular swing states, uh, stories about Hillary Clinton and Parkinson's disease, right? You know mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Which which Russia is ve- Russia and Russian uh, surrogates are very skilled at at generating this kind of stuff and injecting it in. They're doing it in European elections now, and they have done it before. They're information. They're called influence operations. You know the Soviets used to do it, but pre-cyber days, uh, now they're doing now it's it. turbocharged. Now it's turbocharged. Mm-hmm. And it makes a big difference. And, and you know, from the Russian perspective, uh, it was a successful operation, regardless of who they wanted to win. It's the judgment of the U.S. intelligence community that over time, initially they just wanted to undermine the system and, and undermine Hillary Clinton, who they thought was going to win as well. But over time, uh, as they got closer to the election, they thought it was going. To, they said, "Actually, hey, this is going to be closer than we thought. Let's let's help them." That's the judgment of the the intelligence uh, community. So they look at this as successful. And even if Trump hadn't won, and even if they hadn't decided that's what they wanted to happen, just the confusion and the doubt that it created is a positive result for them. And it and it continues because now there's the, the investigation to what potential compli- complicity there was between the Trump campaign. Well, and the Russians, and and we see it now breaking down at places into a partisan yes. kind of fight. So it's still paying dividends. It is, it is for them, and it's also paying dividends in other countries. You got elections in France, in Germany, where Russia is doing the same kind of thing: uh, hacking emails, uh, fake news, etc. And the word I keep hearing from folks in the cyberspace is emboldened. Russia was emboldened by what they did here, and they're going to do it more there, and frankly, more here as well. And and that's the thing. That's why, you know, as as the investigations, and they haven't quite more so on the House side than the Senate side, but as, as they devolve into partisan operations, that that undermines the ability of the U.S. to, you know, one, find out what really happened, um, and two, uh, find a way to prevent it from happening the next time. Let me ask you this uh, as we... Uh, as we leave here. Covering all of this, you've been a reporter for a couple of decades now, uh, and you've covered wars and you've covered Mm. all kinds of difficulties. This is a different kind of challenge because you, I mean, you broke the story uh, about the the FBI and CIA, the the intelligence community's briefing Mm. of President Trump on these issues. You broke the story about uh, uh, Potential contacts between the Trump campaign mm-hmm. and uh, uh, and the Russians. Uh, these were not well received by the White House. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is what engendered some of the fake news charges from uh, the president. Uh, what kind of pressures do you feel uh, as, as you uh, cover this evolving story? The pressure to get it right, to get it right, and. That's always the pressure because you know, having been a journalist, that, that all you have is your reputation, right? And, and that's true as an individual journalist, but also as an organization. Um, 
So you always want to get it right, and that's always been my focus, and our focus, frankly, at CNN. Um, in this environment, you have even more pressure to do so because the smallest slip-up is going to be exploited, right? And the truth is, even when you get it right, you're attacked as, as being fake news. But, you know, don't give them an opportunity to do that. Um, it's, but it's difficult because you have the President of the United States calling you dishonest people, right? He still, he still does it, calling the organization, pointing you out, uh, that kind of thing. And, you know, at, at the end of the day, I'm an American, right? And is that, you know, is that the environment we, we expect uh, for, for a free press? No, it's not. It's not. And, and it, you know, it does matter. And I, and I, keep, I say to my conservative friends and, and my more liberal friends, I say to them, you know, just, you know, inconvenient or critical information about your guy or, or, your, or your woman is not a vast right or left-wing conspiracy, right? We're doing, you know, people in power make decisions, Sometimes those decisions raise questions. It's our job to raise those questions and pursue them wherever they lead. And, you know, people have short memories, but I get a lot of grief by folks from folks on the, on the Clinton campaign who say, you guys were all over the email thing. You overemphasized you know, it. You were covering it before there was anything there. And I'll say, listen, we were covering a, an active FBI investigation just as we are now, with uh, questions about whether not just the Russians interfered, but whether uh, there was cooperation, collusion between people uh, working for President Trump and the Russians. That's still the, pro- that's still the subject of an ongoing FBI and, and House and Senate investigation, and that's what we're covering. And, and we're covering it with just as much fervor as we did uh, the Clinton email story. Yeah, their, their complaint, of course, is that the full scope of it wasn't known until – after the election, which, you know, was a decision that the FBI and others made, uh, you know, there weren't the same proclamations. That's true. That's not, that's not a, a, a uh, that's not our, that's, but that's that, that wasn't our job, yeah. Yeah. you know, and, and I think it is, listen, it's worrisome. It's worrisome, uh, just as an American and as a journalist that, that because, you know, you know, we take it very seriously um, I think it's enormously important to the functioning of our democracy, not me personally, not just my, my outlet, but, but having a, a free press and, and one that hasn't lost the confidence of the American people, right? And the thing is, this is part of a, a broader thing going on right now, which is a loss of confidence in a whole host of institutions. Exactly. Yeah. And um, we've got to find a way to correct that because it's, it's not good for any of us if, if, we, if we allow that to happen. Um, and I, I just, you know, from a personal perspective, one, you know, if anybody doubts it out there, I take it very seriously. Two, my colleagues take it very seriously. And three, at the end, of the, if you have any doubt about it, I got three kids, right? <laughs> you know, I got, I got to keep working. I got kids to put through college. You know, this is, um, you know, it, it's, it's a personal and it's a professional. Uh, it's a plus. Professional they're going to live in this country, uh, and uh, the the strength of our democracy is going to impact uh, on their lives. Absolutely. Well. Uh, I've had the chance to see how assiduously you do your work, and I uh, appreciate it as a as an American and a and a, and a former and sort of quasi journalist. <laughs> uh, so, Jim Shudo, it's great to have you here. Great to have you at the Institute of Politics, and uh, I look forward to many more discussions. Listen, thank you. It's it's a real honor to be on this broadcast. Thanks very much for for, for inviting me. Thank you for listening to the Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. 
For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.